Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for listening in today as we explore the work Dr. Joel Groover is conducting at Western Illinois University. Dr. Groover teaches soil science and conservation classes, and he received the National No-Till Educator of the Year Award in 2015. We're going to dive into what tools in the toolbox he uses as they research organic grain production. You know the old adage for selling real estate is location, location? Well, in soil health, it's observation, observation. Listen in how he utilizes growers' observations, understanding and observing what's happening in the field to assess the changes they're seeing in the soil. We go on to explore things like landlord-tenant relationships and how landlords are becoming committed to conservation practices and implementing cover crops. In addition to teaching, Dr. Groover is the director of the WIU Organic research program. His research interests include conservation cropping systems with a focus on cover crops and organic grain production, soil organic matter, and innovative teaching methods. So as you can imagine, we're excited to get to talk to him. So Dr. Groover, thank you for joining us today. I know we have a lot to unpack, but we'd really like if you'd start with your background and story. Well, I grew up on a small farm in Maryland. And um, so that was just part of my family culture, you know, taking care of the land. We, we, it was kind of a back to the land um, homestead that kind of by default used mostly organic practices. Um, we did beekeeping and mostly were growing um, fruits and vegetables for family consumption, but some, some marketing as well. And my kind of professional development in this route really began um, with my working on local farms. One, one of the farms was a um, kind of a pioneering rotational grazing operation um, that was just about five miles from, from my family's farm. And so I started reading the Stockman Grass Farmer magazine and hearing about Joel Salatin and um, you know the, some of those other pioneering people back that you know were already part of this effort back in the 90s, um, early 90s. And then uh, in graduate school, I my my masters I connected with Ray Weil, Dr. Ray Weil, who's a real leader in. Um, all things soil, but uh, soil health research. And I did, uh, my master's was looking at soil quality was the term back then in the mid nineties. And um, and I connected with Steve Groff at that time. Um, I was the first graduate student to do research on his farm. And then Ray Wiles had a long um, string of graduate students work with Steve since then. And um, ended up getting a, a PhD where I continued to do work looking at soil organic matter and different you know, relationships between management and, and soil health type parameters. And um, during my master's, I interviewed, uh, initially the, the set was about 70 farms in the mid-Atlantic region, but um, it got whittled down to about 30 farms that were um, basically long-term no-tillers and basically farms that um, were recognized for their commitment to conservation. And the, the basic research project was the farmers identified locations on their farm that were mapped as the same soil type, but they perceived a difference in soil function or soil quality. And so I collected samples from those from those sites and what, what I was trying to learn was what could I measure that agreed with the farmer's differentiation? If the farmer said this soil had better function, a better quality, what could I measure that also supported that? And the, the basic conclusion was that 
the soil organic matter fractions agreed with the farmer's perception. The soil physical, physical properties agreed. And the microbial properties agreed. So nothing too surprising there, but the, the chemical parameters, the standard soil test parameters were not significantly different between the soils that the farmers rated as higher or lower quality. So that, that, was, that was kind of my scientific foundation for thinking about these things. And then I've just uh, continued on ever since, but I've met lots of, you know, Steve Groff was one of those farms. Um, I met lots of interesting pioneers in the mid-Atlantic that had started doing no-till in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, we're already 20, 30 plus years into it um, in the mid-90s when I was doing that work. And since, since coming to WIU in Illinois, I've continued to um, network with lots of innovative farmers. Um, I, I haven't met Monty before in person, but um, have connected through, I guess, common, uh, common denominators. And um, I've, I have students do lots of interview projects. So that's one of the ways that I network with farmers. I have to find innovative farmers for the students to interview. And one, one of my students interviewed M Monty and his dad this, this last fall. Um, and I also participate in uh, online, well, multiple online forums, but one, the biggest one would be Ag Talk, and that's how I also network with lots of innovative farmers. Well, that's fantastic. I, I appreciate you bringing your resources to Illinois, and uh, that's uh, quite a story. Steve's a, a great friend of mine also, and, uh, you know, the, when you mentioned uh, Ray Weil, I'm like, okay, there's the Radish connection, and... Yep. Even and, and those kind of things, and it's you know that's that's an just the radish itself is an interesting story how that it really started out and de developed over time. You know, as yeah, that's what we want to do radish and oats and it winter kills and that's easy and then now it's part of a mixture. You know, it's it's a tool. It's not it's not the only thing. So it's just interesting to see how things change over time. And like you said, soil quality that was uh, something that it used to be. Now it's soil health. Now we hear regenerative ag. So it's just kind of the, the term du jour, right? But uh, yeah. one thing that was just fascinating that you said there, when you're doing those soil quality differences on, within the same soil type, you were saying how farmers nailed the differences that you were able to quantify and the traditional soil test just couldn't touch it. I, I find that interesting. Did, did that kind of blow you away when you did that work? Well, that, that, that kind of confirmed that the chemical parameters, farmers were effectively managing those things. They were able to bring inputs in to manage the nutrient levels, the chemical fertility levels. But the, the things that don't come out of a bag, that come from a system, they were, you know, they were not necessarily solving those problems on, on the sites that had the lower, um, the lower test levels. Um, and, and generally, it, you know, these were farmers that were long-term conservationists. So they were doing well on, you know, the on many of their fields. But the pear maybe was a, you know, the, the, the poor quality part of the pear may have been a field that they just brought in to their farming operation. Or maybe in a few cases was, was even a neighboring farm. Um, so, the, you know, these were farmers that were raising the raising the bar on on their fields but they did have certain fields that for various reasons they perceived to have the higher quality and um they uh they, they had taken care of the chemical parameters but the, the these other types of soil health parameters that, that were still clearly different and i guess one one thing that was different about my approach i wasn't testing the farmer's knowledge I was assuming that the farmers were correct, and I was trying to find out what I could measure that agreed with the farmers. That's a, that's a great way to do it, and I think I agree with you 100%. Soil test only tells you, a traditional soil test only tells you so much, and yes, you need to correct the deficiencies and manage excesses on a traditional test, but boy, uh, no, I, I can just tell, and you can probably too, when you're walking through a field, you can just tell how the, the soil feels under your foot, you can you can look across the landscape and, and see how the plants are responding. You can see 
you know, stalk diameter, uh, nodal distance, just, just by looking at what's going on, you can, you can tell so much more. And, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. So, um, again, best thing you can put in your field is probably not another product, but, uh, uh your shadow. And <laughs> yeah, being out there observing and that, that was also, a kind of the, the social dimension of my work. It, it, my work was mostly agronomic, but I did interview the farmers to ask them, what do you look for in your fields? And so the types of things you just mentioned, you know, how the soil looks or feels right after a rain or during a rain. Um, and then also drought tolerance was something they observed, you know, be a very good indicator of whether soil was healthier or not. Um, so a lot of things related to water were, you know, were the key indicators for these farmers. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate the, the work that you're doing here locally. And um, now with uh, Western Illinois University, I know I drive by it on uh, 67. You have some uh, cover crop plots that uh, you're working with there. Is that the organic farm on 67 or is that the long-term cover crop trials there? North well, so... The, the organic farm is about four miles to the west of 67. Um, we, we're about six miles south of Roseville and then four miles to the west. And there, for a number of years, there, there was a big sign. The, uh, the Illinois Department of Agriculture had a cover crop demonstration project there. And so that, that was a, um, a long-term no-tiller named Terry Davis who, who right. managed that field. And I don't know if you know Terry, but he, he's a very committed conservationist. And um, he, so he was one of many farmers around the state that had kind of high profile locations. They wanted locations that were on major highways. And so uh, yeah. they, they recently took that sign away. But um, I think Terry's continuing, continuing to use cover crops there, but uh, they, they had that sign there for maybe four years. So let's, talk a little bit more on then on, on your work and what you're doing specifically there with the organic research farm. And so uh, me as a conventional farmer, I've been a 25 year no-tiller. Okay. So really with our HEL context, you know, no-till is um, what we build around. Okay. So it's, it's foundational to what we do in your context and on that farm that you're working with is that, that beautiful Western Illinois flat black, uh, makes me jealous, uh, Roseville, you just say Roseville, good hope, all those type of areas, Scioto, you're like, oh man, that's awesome, awesome soil. Um, you're using no-till more as a tool. And you wanna, you wanna talk a little bit about uh, a, a foundation versus a tool and, and how that aligns with the, the soil health principles of, of disturbance and, and how, how, can we, how can we bring that all together or you know, move more to where we're utilizing that tool more within organic systems? Good questions. Um, the approach to no-till that we are using is as a phase in a rotation. So you could think of it as a tool. Um, it, it allows us to minimize what I, what I call, um, you know, whacking the hornet's nest. Whenever you till, you wake up lots of weeds. And so um, that, you know, that can be an important part of weed control, to wake up weeds that you're going to then terminate. But you, you're committed to trying to control lots of weeds once you have whacked the hornet's nest. And so um, in our small grain um, crops and in our soybeans, we have been doing um, a significant amount of no-till um, over now more than a decade. Um, and basically what, what we find is that we do have perennial weeds that start to become a, you know, more of an issue. But all it takes is one year of no-till and we start to have more perennial weeds. And so we want to reset in, in the organic context, we want to reset our system um, to prevent those perennial weeds from becoming more more problematic periodically we have to do that reset by and the perennials you're, you're talking about mare's tail uh likely uh dandelion those kind of things uh, we start to have dandelion we start to have canada thistle we start to have um 
we don't ha have so much of a problem with quackgrass, but we do have some vining weeds um, like uh, um, honey vine milkweed and um, some of the perennial morning glories. Um, and th these were not issues when we tilled every year. Th these are issues that um, we feel like we have control of as long as we do the timely reset. Um, and we have to figure out when to do that so that it's most effective. And so for us, we find that that's the middle of the summer. Um, if we do some tillage following a small grain crop, middle of the summer, it's hot, it's dry, we can have one tillage operation have the most effect on setting back those perennial weeds. If we were to do the same tillage operation in the early spring or the fall, it would have much less effect. And so we, you know, we're trying to look at how to have tillage serve, I guess what I teach my students, serve specific tillage objectives. Those objectives don't have to be accomplished just with tillage, but things like controlling weeds and um, preparing a seed bed and alleviating compaction and those types of things, th those, those are things where tillage is one of the tools that could be used to achieve those objectives. The objectives are valid, but the, the specific tool you use, you have to look what's in your toolbox. And we, we do have a, a different toolbox in organics than conventional. And so that, um, you know, that does create I would say constraints, you know, it limits what we do, but it also creates opportunities in that we don't have a, a quick fix for certain things. So we have to focus more on a systems approach. And there, you know, there are lots of issues that just a uniform application of highly available nitrogen will just basically make all the other issues kind of disappear. You stop noticing them. You stop noticing the variability in nitrogen in your field when you put on this uniform application of, fertile, of conventional fertilizer. And it's the same thing with weed control. You know, if you have a uniform weed control, a chemical weed control, you don't notice how much variation there is across your field because of wheel tracks or what, you know, it, uneven residue distribution from the combine. And so we, we are forced to look at these things that aren't masked by some of the chemical tools. And I mean, I, I, I don't think that we've figured out <laughs> how to address all these things um, by any means, but I think within our context, which is flat black, poorly drained soil in Western Illinois, we, we've made a lot of progress in solving problems and our weed control is much better, our nutrient availability is, is much better. And the, I guess the biggest challenge for me when I talk to other farmers is most of them don't have the same types of soils that, that I'm working with. If, if they have hilly fields, non-square fields, if they have issues that are just very different, um, I, I have to think about, well, not just, you know, that they are organic versus conventional, but they have completely different, a completely different soil context that maybe they are trying to farm organically, but organic for them is different than organic for us because of our soil context. Well, let's, I want to dive in a little more what you just said there. And one of the things that you mentioned was, you know, you can only uh, control those perennials for so long. And I'm wondering what other things could we be doing within that, uh, your current context to control those weeds, right? So, uh, first off, you definitely need to make a t-shirt that says minimize uh, whacking the hornet's nest. I, I think it really needs to <laughs> don't whack the hornet's nest. Uh, you yeah. know. <laughs> don't grow weeds. Don't whack the hornet's nest. I, I could just see some uh, fun college students making a, a yeah. t-shirt out of that. And, and that's a, that's probably a $10 idea right there. But uh, anyway, I wondered if post your small grain harvest that you're talking about in the yep. summer, you can hit that tillage window. So essentially, all of your weeds have germinated that are going to germinate for that season, and they haven't gone to reproduction yet. So that's an optimum time to, you know, kill everything and, and quote unquote, you know, reduce the seed bank. Um, I'm, I'm not in the seed bank group, but 
other people are. So, I mean, that's a great way to not add to the seed bank. I think, could you use another method uh, such as electric uh, zapping, for an example, to take out those weeds at that time? You know, because the small grain harvest were, were fairly low to the ground, at least the broad leaves that come up, uh, giant ragweeds, my nemesis that comes up after wheat harvest. Uh, is that an opportunity that people could look at for a non-till type of approach or something? Yeah, you are right on in thinking that there are other ways other than some aggressive tillage practice at that time. Um, and we need things that are going to kill the weed right down to the roots. And so an electric zapping approach, um, I think, can do that. With one challenge, if, if your main weeds that you're trying to control are vining weeds that aren't really standing up above the, uh, the other vegetation, it, electric zapping requires that your weed be taller than the other vegetation. Um, so there would be some limitations there. Um, that you know, there are other things like um, steaming or flaming your know, thermal methods, but they don't normally go right to the root. Um, I, I think the the best solution is a systems solution rather than a direct targeting of the weed. And so a system solution would be to to go into harvesting hay, where you might be cutting hay every you know. 30, 30 to 45 days, or grazing with livestock. Um, so, you know, there, there are other options, but the systems options require, require uh, you know, more of a fundamental change in how you manage the farm. We, we don't have livestock on the farm. We don't have, we, we don't have fences. We don't have electricity. We don't have water. <laughs> it would be complicated to bring livestock, but uh, I think, Fundamentally, mo most organic farms that don't have livestock, they have weaknesses in their farming systems that, that could be addressed by adding livestock. And of course, you, you, you think about those issues all the time, right? Well, you, you've got my number, Joel. Uh, <laughs> we have sheep, we'll travel. So <laughs> maybe, maybe this summer we could have a little fun and, and load up the flock and, and bring it down and turn them loose on your weeds. Uh, they're, they're pretty that, Yeah, I mean, if, if we could make something like that work, you're, you're far enough away that it might, you know, might be uh, less than optimal. But if we, if we could have a local livestock farmer that just wants to come over and graze some multi-species cover crops after small grains, it would be great, I think, for both parties. Oh, sure. Sure. You bet. We're only an hour away. We'll talk about that after this recording. Okay. <laughs> so the key is, is if you, if you got that weed coming out there, um, the traditional thought is the tillage, you know, resets the clock and our conventional farmers, even in, in California, for example, the beautiful part about tillage is it just makes everything uniform and it resets it. Okay. But then the prop, the problems with tillage are, you know, a soil organic matter loss, a reduction in uh, water infiltration and water um, percolation. You've got the uh, challenges of reseeding that weed bank out there. So there's there's lots of negatives with tillage, but it's kind of the, the simple of the moment thought. So what you're saying is back up the truck, let's plan for two years out today so that we've got this uh, two and three year mindset as a system to prevent the occurrence of the weed. And if we do get the weed, we're going to make sure that we time the tillage and or electrolysis or whatever method of control that we want. We want to time it to the optimum time to where we make sure that we, we kill it uh, in like the summer application versus a spring or fall application where you have minimal success. Yeah, and, and also we want to make sure that, the, um, that we minimize, you know, what, one of the worst effects of tillage is soil erosion. Soil erosion, of course, can be thought of as really an infiltration issue. If you have great infiltration, you have much less opportunity for runoff and sediment being carried away. In the middle of the summer, our soils normally are very receptive to moisture. They've dried out. They also, if we've just done tillage, you know, the soil is, you know, very open at the surface. And so, um, obviously, we, we are flat, flat. So, we don't have a lot. We don't have the highly erodible condition that, you know, would promote more runoff. But, um, we can definitely see tillage done in the middle of the summer. We can have 
three, four inches of rain, you know, come in, you know, uh, just a thunder thunderstorm and it all soaks in. Whereas in the spring or the fall, you get one of those rain events right after tilling and you see much more ponding and, you know, move, movement of sediment, even with our, you know, flat land condition. So let's talk about another method that, that you uh, made me think of other work that you're doing right now, and that's in response to solar corridors. So um, Bob Kramer was the lead on the Soil Science Society of America, you know, subgroup on solar corridors. I uh, early on went to his presentations. Uh, gosh, I remember a meeting in Long Beach probably 12 years ago or so was part of that group. And then uh, recently it's become more popular when uh, Bob Kramer a uh, friend of mine there from Cedar Falls, he, he and then Warren Steinlage and some others started looking at 60-inch rows. I was part of the project for uh, three years. So there, it's kind of developing out. But, but one of the things that's interesting about the 60-inch rows is it allows you an opportunity to interseed a cover crop where rather than uh, you got to look at the yield component. Yes, there's a yield loss in 60-inch rows pretty, pretty consistently. At least there has been in my farm. Now, I think when you plant that cover crop in there, is that an opportunity then to allow you to reset the weeds as far as compete with those perennials that you're dealing with? And could the 60-inch rows and, and the cover crop seeding in there be a way for you to help uh, take tillage out of an organic system or out of any system? Yeah, I think what the 60-inch row or... The solar corridor system, which is a broader concept than just 16-inch rows, they're different configurations, but you're just opening up space so that you have more, more than enough light come in for good cover crop growth during the best time of the year to grow, to grow anything. Um, it, what it does is it, it moves you away from thinking about practices that uniformly um, disturb the whole soil surface. You, you may still have targeted um, control of weeds with, let's say, a high residue cultivator, but you're, you're not disturbing the whole soil surface. You are just simply disturbing the zone where you're going to plant or the zone in between your existing crops. And um, you, you just start thinking about how to, to, to manage for the, you know, the desired effects with a much, in a much more precision or, you know, much more targeted type of way. And there, you know, there are so many interesting ways farmers are driving innovation in, in this world. We, you know, I think we are leaders in doing it in the organic research context, but I, you know, I, I know that every, every year when we think about repeating something that we did, there's another farmer that is just moving on to the next step. <laughs> and so it's so easy for researchers to, to fall behind in the, you know, the innovative things that farmers do. Um, so, you know, we are, we are doing solar corridors a little differently than many of the farmers in the sense that we, we have moved away from planting the cover crops as a second operation. But for us, it makes the most sense to plant the, the, the corridor at the same time as we plant the corn. And then we, you know, we have probably the, the best opportunity for growth of the cover crops because they, you know, they have less shading by the, by the cash crop early on. Um, and we can use our, you know, our standard practices across the field, both for planting and, and for weed control. Uh, but of course we do have limitations on what what cover crops we can plant. Um, there, you know, there are only certain things that we can plant with our planter, whereas more, you know, more species could be planted with a drill. And maybe you can minimize competition by planting your cover crop a little bit later. So there, there are pluses and minuses, but for the organic approach, I think planting synchronously the cover crops and the cash crops makes, makes, has made the most sense for us. And so we're, we are looking. Uh, we're looking at how to improve that approach with the kind of the main. The main thing that we really love to figure out is just how to move back and forth. So we keep corn in the field all the time, but we are rotating the where the rows are positioned rather than rotating the whole field. You know, corn is just a great crop for the Illinois climate. 
It, you know, it does really well. It produces a tremendous amount of residue, but we've got to figure out a way to make enough nitrogen available for, for that corn crop. Otherwise, corn really underperforms. And I, I think the, you know, the, the sweet spot would be if we could grow enough legume nitrogen in between our corn crop each year so that the following corn crop required very few inputs to be well fed. And, you know, we're, we're early in the stages of testing that, but we, we, we feel like there are some possibilities. So that's, that's, that's pretty exciting. And, uh, w- but I just want to drill down a little bit more on the 60 inch opportunity and creating, creating, um, um, you know, companion covers essentially <laughs> in there. Um, so when we, we first started doing the interseeding within crop, uh, you know, we did it the first year at V5, V4. Whoa, no, that don't work. So we did it at V4, V3. Ooh, that don't work. And I agree with you. We probably needs to be planted at the same time. And then when you're planting multiple species, if you're planting a small seeded stuff, it needs to be planted shallow and the larger seeded needs to be planted deeper. So that you have the metering challenge, right? But you also have the depth challenge of placing them at two different yeah. depths. One just needs a little covering of soil and the other one needs an inch, inch and a half. So that, that's, that's a challenge too. But my dad said something, you know, my dad always has these pithy sayings that uh, stick with you. And uh, he said, you know, all these years I've been doing everything I can to kill weeds. Now you're going out and planting weeds. And uh, I, I thought that was kind of interesting, but it made me think, and, and I came up with a saying of either you plant the weeds you want or nature will send you the weeds that you don't want. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you're starting to see weed, have you been doing the court, uh, 60 inch or corridor type work long enough to see some weed shifts in there that because you're planting weeds that you want, are you not getting weeds that you don't want and in, in, in your observations? That, that is certainly, I think, a very insightful way to think about it. And um, I don't think that we've done um, repeated solar corridor systems in the same field long enough to see the shifts that you're talking about. But the, the concept is actually right at the heart of one of my, um, I guess, one of my primary goals in designing new ways to use cover crops is to plant cover crops that I would like to volunteer when, if they set seed, I will be pleased with them reseeding themselves rather than them creating a problem. And so that could be the preceding cash crop becomes my following cover crop. If, if we're talking small grains or mixed, let's say a cereal grain and a pea crop, once that's harvested, we, we are going to have a significant amount of volunteer, let's say oats and peas, and that, that can be just what we want. We might supplement it with a, a few other species, but if we harvest our small grain crop and then drill in a, you know, a few warm season species, we'll end up with this mix of warm and cool season species that can be just, just what we want. And so our, you know, our volunteers are, are serving the system rather than obviously volunteer corn in our soybeans. Normally, you know, that's something that we, we work hard to, to try and control. And so I think anyway, you can design a system so that kind of an inevitable consequence of that system is something that actually continues to support the success of that system. That, that's what you want. And so making volunteer cash crops or cover crops work, you know, for the next crop is, is one of my goals. I think that's an excellent concept you've got there. Plus, in organic, when you're dealing with oats and peas, you're going to get the growth out of them. They're going to grow nicely in the fall, too, in the cool season. Then they terminate. They frost terminate. So you don't yep. have to deal with the chemical termination. We've been doing some work on uh, non-GMO soybeans and companion cropping wheat and rye with it. You know, harvest within crop by, you know, laying over the beans. And then, um, you know, the combine we set where we put about a bushel to the acre back out the rear end in order to reseed. So, so this year on uh, 40 acres, we did this, and then we went ahead and did not seed cover crops there on purpose 
just to see what kind of a return uh, volunteer cover will get. But it's still, you know, a winter crop, so we will have to chemically terminate that in order to when we go back to corn this year on there. But that's uh, that's an interesting concept. Thinking about, you know, what you run out the back of the combine becoming the cover crop that you need. So, so just to add on to that, one of the things that we are looking at this year. We are planning to have some plots that will be either oats or oats plus peas, plus there will be a single row down the middle of every combine pass that will be a much more diverse mix of cover crops. And so, for example, there, there might be flax, there might be phacelia. There might, we're looking at cool season species with very small seeds, so they will mostly just pass right through the combine. and you know, the, to, to, to grow enough seed to actually be a full seeding rate doesn't take many plants at all out in that field. So we can grow 1% of the field area to what we want to actually be planting with the combine. That, that's the concept, not tested yet, but we, we have a bunch of plots out, you know, that are currently on paper <laughs> that hopefully will turn into uh, real plots this spring and we'll, we'll be able to see what works there. In all of my days in a, a farm equipment dealership, I never would have dreamed that we're purposely trying to grow a crop that won't be harvested. It'll go through the combine, but not into the grain tank. So <laughs> there you go. That's a, that's a mind shattering uh, proposition right there. We, we had to talk to the buyer of our oats and peas to make sure that he wouldn't mind having a little bit of brassica seed, um, you know, mustard, is one of the things that we're considering. This is a dairy farmer. We want to make sure that a little bit of mustard added to his ration is not going to compromise the milk quality. So we're, we're having that dialogue, but um, the, the idea that just a tiny amount of something, basically like a weed, you know, something out there that we are putting there intentionally. And um, basically we're, you know, we're, we're doing it in a way that we think we will have minimal impact on the yield of our, our cereal grain. But if we place it right, if we have the combine set right, it will get distributed very uniformly across, across our field. That's the concept. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Uh, I'll have to come down. I'm only an hour away. We need to spend some time together. And yep. The other thing is that oat pea and that small seed, what you're doing there, let's say you didn't have the context of a local dairy farmer to take it for feed. The nice part about those is the density, the shape, the size of those seeds are easy to air separate, yep. easy to rotary screen separate, you know, compared to trying to separate rye from wheat uh, or something like that. But uh, well, that's... Uh, you know, even if you didn't have a, a food source for that, you could still grow those organically, seed separate those and sell them in, in grain markets too. So fantastic. You mentioned you don't have your own livestock herd and, uh, you know, I hope here in the next 15 minutes or so, I'll have you talked into one, but, uh, what <laughs> talk to me today about how you're utilizing livestock. You've mentioned a little bit about using them when you have that oops effect and uh, maybe a field gets taken, a plot gets taken over by weeds or, or what other ways are you currently integrating livestock on the, on the farm there that you're working with? <laughs> well, so we, we don't currently bring any livestock to the farm, but we bring manure to the farm, but we do it um, in a much more strategic way, I think, than many organic farmers, just kind of the, the nature of where organic farms spring up tends to be where you have a concentration of manure available. So there's a concentrated you know, animal feeding industry in a certain region and you, get, you end up with enough manure available for organic farmers to access it cheaply and you know, haul it to their fields conveniently. And so um, we are not in one of those hotspots. We're far away from livestock you know, manure being available. And so um, we're mainly using dried manure products pelletized manure that allow us to meter it very uniformly. It's, you know, it's easier to work with and it also doesn't have all that weight of water since we have to bring the manure some distance. So we're trying to use as little manure as possible, but just use it as precisely as possible. Um, we do sometimes, um, well, most years we sell a little bit of hay, um, mainly from our buffer areas around our fields. But if we 
know, if we had a more integrated system, we, we would feel much more comfortable about harvesting hay crops that would go to livestock where the manure would come right back to our farm. Um, you know, from come right back to our, our grain production fields. Um, you know, I, I talk about, um, you know, good farmers, conventional organic always have their plan B's and C's and D's. They, they have multiple options when things don't go as planned. And livestock create lots of additional options that um, a straight grain farmer doesn't have. They create more plans too, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> Some years we've run out of letters in the alphabet. We're, we're on plan Z and we just don't know where to go from there. Yeah, <laughs> I believe it. And they create, a, they create just a continuous activity load that, um, you know, grain farmers today, that they have recognized that the activities are not nearly as continuous. So, you know, people joke that they go to Florida, but they may just get another type of job. They are hauling, you know, things in their trucking line or they, you know, they, they have other types of activities. Straight grain farming allows you to divide up your year into multiple types of activities, whereas livestock farming keeps you busy throughout the whole year. And I, I see that as, from the perspective of, of someone who's constantly working with young, you know, young people that don't know how they're going to be able to get back to the farm, I see livestock, that continuous activity as being a great opportunity for young people to um, justify to their family and, and to themselves that there's a reason why they should come back to the farm. Um, but, it, you know, if you are, if you've gotten accustomed to the, um, I guess you could say, partitioning of the year into just the key grain farming activities and then having the rest of the year to do other things, bringing livestock back is a very big shift. Yeah, it's not planting season, harvest season, and, and Florida season then, is it? No, <laughs> not at all. In livestock, there's the busy season and then there's the busier season. So. <laughs> Want to uh, shift the conversation just a little bit now, and, and you get to see and interact with a lot of people across many states and different practices. You know, over the last, well, it's been going for a long time. There's there's becoming a decoupling between land ownership by the operator, um, and we have more and more farms now that are, you know, have a landlord tenant relationship. And there's some dynamics there with in, encouraging or discouraging cover crop uh, use. And then also, we've really shifted in, in my lifetime from primarily 50-50 operation when I was a little kid to now it's dominated by cash rents. Uh, how, do you, how do you see that relationship affecting soil health? What, what do tenants want? What do landlords want? And, and how, does that, how is that changing over time? And, in from what you see from where you're at oh that is a great question one one of the biggest drivers i think of um farmers willingness to do conservation or do anything that is a long-term investment of the land investment in the land is the sense that they are going to have long-term tenure on that land they're able to feel that that land is going to be theirs for you know for decades, you know, for their, their use and their next generational use, that really motivates conservation. And so the cash grain, um, the cash grain mentality, where you are constantly concerned about being outbid for that land, and they don't have tenure on that land, um, that that's very anti-conservation. It just gives you this short look rather than the long look that promotes conservation. Uh, and then the, the other key part of that is you just, you know, what you're buying by paying that cash cash rent is independence from the landowner. You don't, they are not involved in your decision making. And, you know, that's one of the things you're paying for with your cash rent. The, the farmers that have the you know, the best relationship with the landowners 
are ones where the landowners are in support of their their conservation practices and are willing to help cover some of the risk early on with maybe a new conservation practice. Um, it's you know it's it's a tricky thing. I I confess I have some former students that come back to me and say, Joel, my landlord read an article where you were interviewed and now they're demanding I plant cover crops. How am I going to do this? <laughs> so I mean that that could be a complication where the the landlord is more committed to conservation than the farmer is ready to, you know, to jump into. And that that's got to be um, figured out. It's, you know, it's got to work in a way that uh, you know, works for both sides. And of course, there's a middle side of this equation. The middle of the equation more and more is that there's a, a farm manager that is who the farmer talks to and then the landowner talks to. And so there's even more separation between the landowners and the farmers. And I mean, there, there are certainly shining examples of farm managers that are very conservation oriented and work well with both sides of the equation. But uh, unfortunately, most farmers complain about, about farm managers. They, they have a, a strained relationship in many cases and they, uh, they they see the farm manager as working for the landlord, not not working to to really help the, the farmer, you know, do the you know, do the best uh, they can do. And um, so somehow or another, we need to. I guess we need to confront the reality that cash rent is is not going to go away. But um, there there can be. Um, a different type of farm manager in the middle that really listens to both sides and, you know, plays the role that, I guess, an example would be a lawyer is supposed to bring both sides to consensus. But, of course, many lawyers, you know, have a very bad rap because people don't trust them. People think that they are only working for one side or the other. And somehow we need to um, promote this model of farm manager that, that that really is a facilitator of what what both sides want, with conservation, you know, being the, the ultimate goal. Well, I think you you pointed out some some interesting things there, and and I'd like to Kim Kim wants to jump in here, but I, I gotta I gotta say something about farm managers that I can say, okay, and uh, that Joel probably can't say, but I'm I'm gonna dive in just a little bit deeper there. Who pays farm manager? Farm managers paid a percentage of the revenues that are derived from the land. So the farm manager's motivation is to come up with the highest cash rents possible. Farm manager typically don't care anything about the longevity of that farm. They just care about having longevity of the relationship with the person who's paying their bills. So I think they're very anti in most cases. Uh, and I'm glad there are some shining examples out there, but they, they are anti doing anything different. Uh, they very much like to have a formula approach to things. And uh, I personally, as a farmer, my farming hat on, I won't even bother working with them. Uh, I think they're negative, unfortunately. But I also understand why people have it, because they don't understand farming. They don't want to be taken advantage of by a tenant. Uh, they also don't want to have an issue with missing out on programs or, or understand or just simply don't have the time. So it's an expertise and a time thing for the absentee landlord. So anyway, that's that's my rant. You don't need to respond to that. Uh, but uh, I, I think they, they do cause a problem. Now, the other couple of things you're mentioning there, the tenure. And the beautiful part is, is there's been a lot of things in the last 10 years on cash rent and flex rents, where you can have long-term contracts in place to where neither the tenant nor the landlord get painted into a corner. So a great example is commodity prices here in the spring of 2021, you know, when um, things were uh, negotiated maybe last fall or, or something on, on land rents, you know, corn prices were much less than what they are today. And when you put a flex rent in place, you know, as uh, prices go up, it can trigger higher payments to the landlord and as prices go down, you know, then it triggers lower payments. And, and so it, it floats relative to what the fair market value is instead of sitting down every year and, oh, gosh, you know, did I, did I do it right kind of thing. So you get that out of the way so that you and the landlord can work together on what their, his or her goals are on the land. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, 
I think the long-term approach is, is great for both people involved because, you know, you don't want to set up a $600 an acre rent for 20 years. You know, who, who, what tenant would want to do that? And, and then on the other hand, you don't want to set up $150 an acre rent for 20 years. You know, what landlord would want to do that? So looking at those flex rents, I think that's a tool uh, that can certainly, like you said, once, if you know you're going to have a property for four, five, 10 years, you do things different as a tenant uh, to uh, improve those things. And I think that's, uh, that's an excellent opportunity. And also, like you said, the independence and decisions, but then they require a cover crop too. So that's fine as long as you know that's part of the part of the equation out there so you can factor that into okay the customer the the landlord or the customer i guess in this case if you're a tenant uh the landlord wants cover crops okay i know that i'm going to have that recurring expense so i have that as part of my decision making process when i'm making that rent so um i think it can be done like you're saying um you know if you just take the time sit down and and do a little math you can get those long-term goals in place. And in fact, one, one person that uh, we got connected with wanted cover crops for sure. But then when we showed him around our farm with the companion cropping, the 60 inch rows, the grazing, you know, he was like, okay, this is great. These regenerative practices you're doing, I don't want to paint you into a corner, but I want you doing some of those regenerative practices on 20% of the, of my farm every year. I, you, you pick and choose what you want to do, but I want 20% wild is essentially what he was saying. Mm-hmm. And that, that gave me the flexibility to do the regenerative practices based on what we learn over time, because, you know, who knew we were going to be doing today what we were doing, you know, five years or five years ago, who knew we were going to be doing what we're doing today? And I guarantee you five years from now, it'll be wildly different. So, you know, if, if a landlord and a tenant can work together, prevent uh, and set up those long-term flex rents that are fair to both people, and they can set it up in a way that gives flexibility to the operator to accomplish soil health goals, I think there can be some real win-wins there. And uh, I think it can be a model to help move it forward because that is kind of a stumbling block right now. That is exactly my perspective. And I think that having students, my students, interview farmers like you and hearing about the agronomy, which is the main thing my students ask about, but also hearing about some of the other aspects. You know, if a, if a future student talks to you, make sure that you tell them about some of these landlord relationship things, not just the agronomy in your fields, because, it, you know, they have to support each other. You, you can't make the agronomy decisions independently of the, you know, the social and economic Issue. Well, and that's something that I think that it just really struck me when you said that farmers shifted from a 50-50 to cash rent. And in the cash rent scenario, in their mind, they were farming the way they wanted to. In other words, it had removed the landowner from any kind of agronomic vision. And now what we're seeing is this paradigm shift again to, yes, they're paying a cash rent, but the landlord is involved and is helping and guiding some of the direction of that land because, of course, they want that land to improve and see those things change in a positive direction. And so I think that seems like a really subtle thing, but that's a pretty big deal in my book. (laughs) I'd be willing to contend, and Dr. Groover, you you comment on this, but don't you think there's more interest in uh, landlord utilization, uh, landlords wanting to see soil health practices versus operators wanting to do soil health practices? Um, quite possibly. I mean, there, there is, just, just like in, you know, the producer community, you have the pioneers and you have the people that are kind of, the, you know, the, the middle, and then you have the, the slow to, a, to adopt. You have in the landlord community, you, I think it, to a large degree, it splits out in terms of age. You have people that are the, these new generation next generation people that have become landlords and they they are reading about regenerative agriculture or they are you know they're shopping for you know certain types of foods for their family and they realize you know i i've been detached from what's happening to my family's land but maybe i need to have more you know more more of a i guess congruency between the way i shop and the way my my family's land is managed, and so the the younger generate the younger landowners I think are the main ones that are driving the you know the, the difference in what the landlord you know expects from the farmer. Um, but it's also I think 
another another aspect of it is a change in the gender of the landlords. Independent of age, we have more and more women that are the landlords, and the uh, you know the American Farmland Trust and other groups have been really working with these women landlords to help them realize that they they can have an you know a an empowered relationship with the tenant. They, they don't have to just let the tenant say, this is what I'm going to do. They, the landowner can think about, well, maybe how did my husband or my father used to farm this land? Not all the practices, but certain things that they, you know, they liked about how their, you know, their family member that farmed previously was very conservation oriented. They, they can feel empowered to make those requests on their current tenants. Great, great points. Well, before we let you go, we do have to ask about uh, uh, projects that you have coming up, and um, uh, you, you alluded to a few of them. And I and I have to ask you, did you get did you put to work the cedar mower uh, combination on your sixty inch rows? Um, cedar mower. Explain what you mean. I think last year you talked about uh, developing a tool that had basically seeded cover crop, uh, like fall cover crops. Uh, on the front, and it was going to mow the existing summer cover crops within the. Yes, summer. so yes, so we were planning to have a tool that basically a you know a very small tractor would be pulling a chopper as well as dropping the cover crop seed in the front, and so the chopper would be in the back, the cover crop seed would be dropped um, in the front, run run through a little gandy box, and you know the way the way things work. During the summertime, all of a sudden, you just have to take action before things get too big or things get away from you. So uh, I ended up broadcasting the seed by hand rather than building the gandy box right up, right into the, the front of the uh, tractor. But the uh, the direction I'm going with, with that for this season is actually related to what we discussed earlier. I'm planning to plant a mix of cool season and warm season species so that the cool season will reseed itself. And if if I decide to chop the cover crop, I'll be terminating the warm season cover crop, let's say at some point in August, but I will also be shattering the cool season seeds and lightly incorporating them into the soil. So I won't have to come out and seed separate, you know, as a separate process, the seed will have been grown in place. That That's you know, as we've already discussed, that that's a concept I'm trying to figure out various ways to make that work. And the 16-inch rows are just one of the uh, one of the canvases where I'm trying to paint that picture. So you're going to save yourself a candy box, and you're going to save yourself buying seed twice. See, so the the great, great, great thinking. What other projects are you planning this uh, coming year? Well, one of one of the related things that we are re- related to this idea of trying to plant things that are not our cash crop, but have, you know, have other purposes. We, we know that frost seeding red clover into small grains works really well, but then we end up with just red clover. So we're looking at more diverse ways that we can interseed into small grains that will give us the multi-species cover crop mix after the small grain. And the main, the main reason we're trying to look at this differently is it just tends to be so hot and dry after the small grain that we might plant in late July, but nothing comes up for a month because it's just so dry at that time. So we could get the more diverse mix established under the oats or whatever the small grain is, but not interfere with the oat harvest or the oat yield, then, um, you know, then we have, have things working for us better. So we're looking at various ways to do that. So, you know, Rather than just red clover, we might add in sweet clover, might add in a few other types of annual or biennial clovers. Um, but we're also looking at adding, the, basically planting the oats and then coming back about a month later and planting some warm season species like a cowpea, for example, um, maybe even a forage soybean. We, you know, it's kind of like a relay cropping system, we will come in maybe around the same time that if you were relay cropping, like like you or Lauren Steinlogge might be, you know, planting their beans, you know, before the 
you know, the small grain is ready to harvest, we would be planting the beans as a cover crop before the oats are ready to harvest. And we, we'd be getting out that warm season species or a mix of warm season species before the, um, you know, when the, basically when the soil is more suitable for getting a good take, you know, a good establishment of that cover crop. And then we harvest the small grain and we don't have to, we don't have to rip everything up and plant the diverse mix then when it's still hot and dry. So that, that's another thing that we're looking at. Um, we, we also have some uh, new ideas in terms of making our no-till soy, our organic no-till soybean systems work for the long run. We normally, you know, are thinking three, four years at a time. When, when we are planting the no-till soybeans, we wanted to think about what's going to be the next crop and the crop after that. And so we, we think there's a great opportunity for corn to follow the organic no-till soybeans because we, we think that we can, we can grow more um, legume biomass when we allow the, you know, if, if we're going to let the, the rye go all the way to head, Basically, we are waiting longer than we normally would before we might plant the beans. So why not let the rye grow longer, but also let a legume grow longer at that time, such that we are building soil fertility that's not necessarily needed for the soybeans, but would, but would be beneficial, especially beneficial to the following corn crop. And maybe we would even have a legume that goes to seed and reseeds itself so that it doesn't, you know, so that it is, re, you know, growing um, the next spring uh, ahead of the corn crop. So various things kind of fitting together. <laughs> and then you'd look at planting the beans and go into a, a roller crimp type of uh, situation at uh, V2 uh, after the beans are up. So you get enough of the clover, set it back. Yep. And it'll still come through. Uh, during the, the soybean growing time, the rye will be terminated and then it would, uh, you know, frost off and it'd still be there the next year for the corn and manageable within the corn to roll it down again. Yeah, but whether it's clover or, um, they, you know, we are looking at some other legumes like like peas, for example. Um, it, you know, the biggest challenge with making legumes really fix enough nitrogen is just letting them grow long enough that they can fix that nitrogen. If, if you kill them in early May, they, they haven't fixed much nitrogen in, in our weather with the species that we have currently available. But if you can kill them at the end of May or early June, then they, they've really had time to, to fix a lot of nitrogen. And we, we're trying to figure out what species will, you know, will fit with both the no-till soybean system, but also fit with the following crops. And then the other thing you can't do too is get it too high nitrogen-based crops during that soybean year because then you'll be burning carbon out of the soil for the long-term impact too. So you have to balance the total residual high carbon nitrogen ratio rye to the, yeah, so there, and because we want to have that sequestered and stored um, uh, carbon in the soil, not just, you know, release. I think if we have enough rye to really provide good weed suppression, I'm not too concerned about there being too much nitrogen available during the soybean season. But what, what we've got to figure out is how to make that nitrogen available to the following corn crop. We're, we're basically feeding the soil rather than trying to feed these, you know, the specific crop that follows that, that legume. We're feeding the soil so that the soil will be able to feed the, the, you know, the corn crop the next season and, and maybe a, another more nitrogen demanding crop the following season. Excellent. Um, any uh, key resources or research that you've done or others that are done that we should make available uh, in the podcast notes here that uh, comes to mind? One thing that I've just been working on is a presentation on solar corridors for the National Cover Crop Summit. And so um, I was just enjoying looking at that lineup um, last night. And there, there's a great mix of, of uh, farmers and scientists that will be presenting for that meeting. I'll also be speaking to a, a, a virtual audience that is the Northeast Cover Crop Council. I mainly work here in the Midwest. We have the Midwest Cover Crop Council, and they have a great website. The MCCC website um, has great resources for mid, 
you know, for Midwest cover cropping. But there are these cover crop councils all around the United States. And one, one of them is the Northeast uh, group. And so um, not exactly sure why they decided to invite a Midwesterner to speak about innovative cover crop um, planting systems. But that's something that I'm, as soon as I finish this conversation, I'll get back to work on that presentation, which is due next week. Well, I certainly appreciate your time today. Uh, it, it was great. Um, uh, the conversation flew by for me. Uh, but one of the things I, I want to talk to our listeners here and have you just think about how Dr. Gruber is approaching things and how he thinks differently and, and really is looking at pulling all the levers that he has available to him and his team. And I want you to do the same thing on your farm is to dare to be different uh, and really fear the same. Okay. We, we get stuck in the ways that we've done things because we've always done it that way. If you're doing that, you should be afraid of that mentality. And you need to be thinking about how these things can work together. Hear what he talked about, how they're thinking in a four-year, five-year horizon and context, how they're thinking about how the different plants work together to reduce the need for off-farm inputs, to improve consistency of yields, how they're thinking about the spatial location of uh, corn is here this year. And we instead of rotating fields, we're rotating 60 inches over. Here are all these different things that he's, that he's thinking about and how the landlord context plays into things, how, how we're using the cover crop to create the seed for the next cover crop, how we're harvesting one thing and, and separating out another to blow through. I mean, there are some very powerful uh, ideas and tools that, that he's talked about, and it's not just a theory. He's doing it. He's making it work, and he's making it work in highly productive soils these concepts would certainly apply to marginally productive soils too. And in fact, would probably have an even greater impact because on highly productive soils, you can kind of do anything and get away with it. But when you get into more marginal soils, these concepts and principles that he's working with will have an even greater, greater impact. So I uh, really encourage you that uh, to take and put all that to work on your own farm. But Dr. Groover, I, I certainly thank you for your, your time today. It's, it's really amazing to hear what you got going on because in uh, the three I states, we, we grow corn and beans and don't know anything else, it seems like. So uh, it's great to hear that you're, you're challenging the status quo. So sometimes it seems that way, but I, I think we do have lots of innovators and I'm grateful to every innovator that's ever talked to my students. And I look forward to more conversation with you, Monty, about uh, possible collaboration. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Gosh, there was so much to glean from this conversation today. I got to say, as a kid growing up in the country, I have a great appreciation for not whacking the hornet's nest. That's just a really good illustration of what tillage does by waking up unwanted weeds. I hope you gain some practical insight and possible ideas that you can implement as you move forward on your own soil health journey. If you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to implement these practices, check us out on our website at asn.farm. And from there, you can click on links to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Let's get connected. There's a lot of great things happening and always something great to learn. Thanks for listening.